Well, kids, you're welcome to go to your class at this time. We have a kids' class every week that meets in the back room here, and there's also a nursery that's available in the room off to the back side over here. And uh, kids, you're welcome to just get up and go at this time if you would like to go to that class. I'd invite the rest of you to join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to consider together verses 12 to 19 this morning. Uh, I recognize that it is Mother's Day, a very special day, and I would like to continue our sermon series in 1 Corinthians uh, on the resurrection, which is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. And as we do that, I plan to make some applications for mothers along the way. Uh, but the resurrection is, a, is something that is for all of us. It's for all of God's people, and so maybe as I make some applications for mothers, I think it should be pretty easy for you to think through those and go, man, that applies to me as well. Human life is much like the sun. In the morning, it rises in the east in radiance, and by midday, it stands in its strength there high in the middle of the sky. And as afternoon and evening progress, it then settles and then drops over the horizon and disappears, and it's gone. We know what happens next with the sun. The next morning it will rise again. But what about with a person? There is much confusion about life after death. Many believe that there is no life after death. After you die, that's just kind of it. Death is the end, and others uh, would believe, well, I think that the soul lives on. There's uh, the immortality of the soul, but some of those people may even argue that, uh, th- that that life after death, it's not bodily or physical in any way. It's just kind of this existence of the soul. The Corinthians' theology about life after death needed a complete overhaul. Some of them were saying, uh, we see it, on 1 Corinthians 15, some of them were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. In other words, uh, after a Christian dies, he's not going to be raised to life again from the dead, at least not in any kind of bodily way. According to God, though, that view is dead wrong. In fact, the text that we're going to look at today, uh, God teaches us, you must believe in, in the bodily resurrection of the believer. The believer will rise bodily at some point after death. Look at this text with me, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, down through verse 19. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he's talking about there for the believer. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're going to look together today at seven piercing implications if the believer does not rise bodily from the grave. And the first is this. The first implication would be then not even Christ himself has been raised. Look at verse 12. Uh, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection 
of the dead. Uh, Paul is in shock and awe uh, about what the Corinthians are saying and their position here, their perspective. How on the one hand could you assert that Jesus Christ is alive and, and that he rose bodily from the grave on the third day? How could you hold that in one hand and then on the, 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 on the other hand assert that there's no bodily resurrection for the believer? How do you hold those two things together? And his mind is completely blown by that. Uh, look at verse 15, or verse 13, rather. He, go, he continues, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If you take the Corinthians' position, then not even Christ himself has been raised, resurrected from among the dead. That's the logical conclusion. Christ's bodily resurrection and the believer's bodily resurrection, they coincide. They're, they're tethered together. His guarantees our own. We might say that his is the cause and ours is the effect. The believer is united with Jesus Christ. And the reality is Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 20 is going to get to that. But in fact, Christ has been raised. And the believer will be raised bodily as well. I think we have some welders here in our church and I would imagine that many of them while maybe doing new construction have also done some repair work from time to time. Maybe a weld that has uh, popped or separated and needs welded back together again. Well, you think about a weld, the weld between Christ and his people is inseparable. It's absolutely an inseparable union never to be severed. When the believer is united with Jesus Christ, that bond is eternal and nothing can sever it. Which means that if the believer does not rise bodily, then not even Christ himself has been raised. Paul's just saying these two have to go together. Think about the implications of that. What if Christ has not been raised? If, if the believer doesn't rise bodily, then Christ hasn't been raised. And think about what that would mean. And the remaining six implications take up that very thought. What if Christ has not been raised? Uh, implication number two, then preaching the gospel is useless. It's completely and totally useless. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If there's no bodily resurrection for the believer, that means Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, then why on earth would any of us preach the gospel? Why on earth would any of us share the, the quote-unquote good news with another person. There's no basis for that. The gospel without the resurrection is an empty gospel. If you remove the resurrection from the gospel, you actually rip out the heart of the gospel itself, rendering it lifeless. It's empty. There's no substance to it. And we'd be wasting our time to preach it. We'd be wasting our time gathering here this, mor or this morning and opening God's word and looking at the gospel. It would be a futile exercise to preach the gospel. The word vain in verse 14, as he, he talks there about uh, how our preaching would be in vain. Uh, that word essentially means empty. You might think of a, a well without water. You go to a well and, and you're thirsty and, and you want to draw water out of it and it's going to satisfy your thirst or, or maybe you're going to use that water for something and you go and it's bone dry. There's nothing there. You, you've got this, this massive pit, this well, with nothing in it. And Paul's saying, that's what our preaching would be like. It'd be like an empty well. That's what the gospel would be like. You've got this container with nothing in it. No substance. Or you might think of a cistern without water. 
Uh, at our ho- home, we have a cistern, and we've run out of water at least once, maybe twice. It's really great to have a cistern, but if you don't have any water in it, it's no good. And Paul's saying that's the preaching of the gospel. If Christ has not been raised, then the gospel itself is like an empty container that's worthless. But the reality is that Christ has been raised from the dead, and preaching the gospel is not only worthwhile, it's powerful because Jesus is alive. Romans 1 verse 16, I love how it describes the the gospel. It describes the gospel as being the power of God. The power of God. If the believer does not rise bodily and Christ isn't risen, then preaching the gospel is a waste of time. It is useless. But I want to encourage you here this morning to share the gospel. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive and it's powerful. The gospel is the power of God. And you want to share that good news that Jesus is alive, that as we saw in the previous uh, text in 1 Corinthians 15, that he, he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. God called you to evangelize and share this good news with others and then to be a disciple maker of fellow believers. And the gospel's needed for both of those things. We don't just use the gospel to tell people about Jesus so that they can know how they can be saved from their sins and on their way to heaven. Yes, we certainly do that, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel's for everyday life. It's, 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 it's for the entirety of our life. The gospel is not simply where the Christian life begins. It's the fuel on which the Christian life runs. This morning, thinking about mothers, God has called you to be a messenger of the gospel really everywhere you go, but uh, one focal point of that would be your home. And your children need the gospel for their, what the Bible calls justification, their, their salvation. In order for them to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and be declared righteous by God, your children need the gospel. But they need it as well for what the Bible calls their sanctification, their, their progressive growth and godliness. And I just want to encourage you this morning to take the time to teach your children the gospel again and again and again. And its implication is from every angle. It always comes to bear upon life. And to teach it at regular intervals, and sometimes that's going to mean in your home, you're, just, you're regularly teaching the Bible and Bible stories and reading those and those sorts of things, looking at God's word together taking even those times of discipline and correction, which are uh, so tempting. Life is crazy and you're, and you're in a rush and it just needs done. Your child needs corrected or disciplined or whatever and it's just boom, get it done, moving on. And yet all of those are actually amazing gospel opportunities. Where does the gospel fit in this picture? And taking the time to share the gospel and its implications is always time well spent because Jesus is alive and our preaching is not empty. It's not in vain. So it is worthwhile to share the gospel with your unbelieving children from from the earliest of ages in the home as soon as they can understand. And it's worthwhile to share the gospel with your believing children. This is the fuel on which the Christian life runs. And it's also worthwhile to share the gospel and and pray for your own mother because Jesus saves. Uh, There may be some of you here today and as you think about Mother's Day, uh, you're actually grieving a little bit as you think about your own mother and the fact that to your knowledge, she doesn't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And you love her, and yet as you think about her today, you are saddened because you don't know that she's been forgiven of her sins by the Lord, and you don't know that she's on her way to heaven. And I think we do well to just remember that you know God can save your mom. 
and maybe you've been praying for her for years and years and years, well, think about the message that we declare. Think about the message uh, that we would share individually. This good news that's found in God's word, it's the power of God. Because Jesus Christ is alive. If the gospel is some kind of sham, then so is your faith in it. And that leads us to the third implication. If the believer does not rise bodily, then your faith is useless, it is futile, and it's fruitless. Look at verse 14, and then we'll skip down to verse 17. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And skipping down there to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, then, then your faith is vain. It, it's much like that, that well with no water in it. You've got the container, but there's no substance. Your faith is vain. We might say it's useless. It, it's not well-founded. It's empty. And it's also, verse 17, teaches this idea that it, it's futile. And the idea being it's fruitless. It doesn't produce anything. The object of your faith would be a dead man. What good is that? What can that possibly produce? Uh, We have a a, a little small cherry tree right next to our garage. I love that tree because every year it it blossoms and it's pink and white and it's just a really beautiful tree. But over the last uh, couple years, every year it's just a little bit more dead than the year before. Most of the branches on it are dead. And I'm about to take it down because it's a dead and fruitless tree. Uh, It's no good anymore. It's not really producing any good fruit. If there's no resurrection, your faith is like that. Why would you have a, a tree that's dead? Why have a dead faith that's incapable of producing any fruit? And if Christ has not been raised, then then that's your faith. Your faith is the object of your faith is empty and it's not going to produce, there, there's no life in that. It can't change your life. But the reality is, is that Christ has been raised bodily from the dead, which means that our faith is well-founded and our faith can be fruitful. If a believer does uh, not rise bodily, then your faith is useless, futile, and fruitless. But if he's alive, what should your faith be like? Well, it's well-founded to start with and it should produce something. And so I would ask you, Again, thinking about moms in particular this morning, is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? And that's a question for all of us. If Jesus Christ is risen from the grave and our faith is well-founded, then then it should be a faith that produces something. If you don't see any evidence of spiritual life and growth, then I think the question is, well, is my faith well-founded? What is my faith even in? And maybe there are some of you sitting here this morning and and your faith is founded in in something other than than Jesus Christ and the good news of what he did for you. And maybe your gospel is actually the gospel of you and what you can do and how you can work harder and how you can try harder and how you can be a better person and how you can try to reform yourself and just be a wonderful mom. Well, the gospel of you won't get you anywhere and it's not going to produce any kind of real lasting change. But what this text talks about, it talks about a faith that's well-founded, that produces something that's amazing, real, living 
fruit and change. And in order for a person to have that, their faith, their trust, their, ha- their confidence has to be in Jesus Christ and what he did for them. Back in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, Friday delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared. A well-founded faith is founded on what we just read there, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and he rose again. And that Christ's death on the cross to die for our sins is enough to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ is God and he's perfect. And he paid for your sins and mine in full on the cross and he rose again. He's alive. And for a person to have the life that Christ offers, a person has to say, I believe that to be true. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. God, will you forgive me based on what Christ did to die on the cross for my sins? I believe that what he did is enough and that he is alive. Will you save me? And at that point, life begins in a person and that life begins to grow and it begins to produce fruit. If the believer does not rise bodily, then your faith is useless, it's futile, it's fruitless. A fourth implication, if the believer does not rise bodily, then the apostle's teaching is false and it can't be trusted. Uh, Look at verse 15 with me. Paul's saying, if this is the case and there is no bodily resurrection and Christ didn't rise from the grave, then verse 15, we, speaking of Paul the apostle and the other apostles, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. What's Paul saying? He's saying, guys, listen, if there's no bodily resurrection, if God's people don't rise, then Christ Jesus didn't rise. And that would make Paul and the rest of the apostles a bunch of charlatans and liars. Paul's saying, Christ rose Or we lied. It's one of the two. The apostles would have made a false allegation about God and what he had done. By the way, the New Testament, it comes to us uh, through the pen of the apostles. It comes to us ultimately from the Lord, but it comes through the pen of the apostles. And if they lied about the resurrection, then the apostles' teaching is false. And it cannot be trusted. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, if this didn't happen, we're a bunch of liars and you can't trust us. You might as well grab your Bible and and find the New Testament and all the pages in it and grab those and just rip them out and throw them away and discard them, Paul is saying. Because they're no good. They'd be a, a false testimony. It would mean that you've been swindled and you've been deceived. Has that ever happened to you? Has anyone ever swindled you or deceived you? I think I, a couple years ago, I told a story of that happened to me not all that long ago. I had, uh, in the middle of winter, purchased this treadmill on Kijiji. And apparently it was at this guy's storage unit. So he had to go get it. And we were going to meet in the back of a Walmart parking lot. I never even plugged it in and tried it. I just bought it, threw it in the back of the truck, I got one of the guys from church to help me get it all the way down to my basement. And we're in an old farmhouse. Like our stairs are not big. They're narrow and they're they're short. And we get this thing all the way down to the basement, plug it in. Oh, 
I guess it doesn't work. And so I texted the guy. Of course, no response. Crickets. And I was like, ah, oh. I, I did eventually get it fixed. The, the board on it had some problems. But that, I had been completely swindled on Kijiji. And obviously that upset me. Because I had been lied to and I had been deceived. And I was left with basically a bunch of garbage in my hand and lost some money in the process. Well, Paul's saying something like that. He's saying, listen, if Christ didn't, if there is no bodily resurrection and Christ didn't rise, then all the apostles' witness, all the apostles' testimony, you've been swindled and what you have in your hands is a bunch of nothing. But the reality is, is that Christ has been raised bodily from the dead. That there is no body in some tomb somewhere. And the apostles' teaching is true and it can be trusted. And you can trust not just the apostles uh, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but their entire witness, their entire doctrine and teaching as a whole. You can cling to your New Testament scriptures as well as the entirety of God's word. Uh, I think it's an amazing thought that the resurrection actually validates every single word in this book. The resurrection does that. The book that you hold in your hands so if the believer does not rise bodily and Christ has not been raised, then the apostle's teaching is false and it can't be trusted. But verse 20, what does it say? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's a fact. It happened. He's alive. So what does that mean for you? Well, it means you have a trustworthy Bible. And so I want to ask you, what are you doing with that? You have this witness to the resurrected Christ. You have the apostles' doctrine and teaching. What are you doing with this book? Again, thinking about moms in particular this morning, though this would certainly be applicable for all of us. You want to be a good mom. And you want the resurrection to impact your life. You want the gospel to permeate your soul. And, and you, you, you want uh, your faith and trust in the gospel to, to produce fruit. And that even show up in, in your home and the way that you parent or even relate to your grown children. Well, if that's the case, then God's book coming to us through those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, it's exactly what you need in your life. It's exactly what all of us need in our lives. The living Christ has a living book and it testifies of him. And if you want the resurrection gospel to uh, flow through your veins and if, if you want it to flow out of your lips in these words of life and health and joy and peace and you want it to come out in your deeds, then you need to imbibe it in the pages of God's word. Every Christian needs that because you can't approach the living book of the living God and spend time there in the presence of the living God and not be changed. You could harden your heart and you could become colder and harder and harder to it, but if you open up this book and you read it, this, this book goes to work on you. It's powerful and the Spirit of God goes to work on you and it starts to change you and, and, and make you look more like Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful treasure in our hands and yet so often we do nothing with it. And often as a result, the, the, the resurrection life that we should have as God's people, we don't seem to have a whole lot of that. But by God's grace, he's given us his word 
And it's a means of grace. It's a means of God's favor towards us and it's his help towards us to live the life that he's called us to live. Another implication, number five, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. Look at verses 16 and 17 if you would. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If there is no bodily resurrection for the believer, then Christ uh, didn't rise and that would mean that you are still in your sins. What does that mean? What does it mean for a person to be in their sins? Well, maybe you remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 which reads as follows. It says of God's people, after they've put their trust in Christ, it invites them to look back. And it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked. If you are in your sins, what does that mean? It means that you are dead. And you are still living and walking in sin as a way of life. If you're still in your sins, it would mean this. It would mean that your sins are still unforgiven and that you're guilty before God. If you're still in your sins, it would mean that that you're still liable to God's eternal judgment in hell. That that awaits you. And that you're currently uh, sitting underneath God's wrath. If you're still in your sins, it would mean that you are still currently, this very moment, a slave in bondage to sin. You are bound to it. It would mean as well that you're still under death's power. And in that case, Paul wouldn't be saying in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, that such were some of you. I mean, the Corinthians' lives before Christ, they, they were a disaster. They were a mess. They were so full of sin and depravity and wretchedness. And yet Paul said to those people, such were some of you. You were bound and you were chained in your sin, but not anymore. If you're still in your sins, it would be, and such are some of you this very day. This is who you are today, now. And Paul is making the point in this verse that a denial of the future, if you deny the bodily resurrection of God's people, then it's actually a denial of the past itself. If you don't have a future bodily resurrection for God's people, you were never saved in the past and you aren't today and you're still in your sins. But the reality is, verse 20, that Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the fact. And the believer, the person who's put their trust in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins, they're no longer, that person's no longer in his sins. And when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, we read this. It's, and such were some of you. That's who you were. That was your life. But you were washed. You were sanctified, which means set apart. You were justified, which means you were declared righteous by God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, if you've trusted in Christ to save you from your sin, if you've said, wow, I, God's done a work in my life. I, I believe that Jesus Christ is God. And I, I see that. And God, in, as, in his miraculous doing, brought you to the point of confessing your sin to God. You said, God, I'm a sinner. I, I I deserve your judgment. And you said, God, forgive me, but what Christ did on the cross, I believe that he's God. I believe that he died for my sins. I'm trusting in him now to save me from my sins. 
If you've trusted Christ to save you from your sin, that means your sins are forgiven and Christ took your guilt. It means that you are no longer liable to God's judgment. Christ took it. There's no fear of hell and God's eternal wrath and judgment for your sin. There's no fear of being face to face with God and him destroying you for all eternity with his wrath. As well, you are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer bound. You no longer have to follow sin. You're a new creature in Christ. Uh, You are no longer under death's power. You have life, and not just life, you have eternal life. To borrow John's words, you've been born again. You were born once, born in sin, and you were born again by the living God. He brought you forth in life. If the believer does not rise bodily, When Christ hasn't been raised, then you're still in your sins. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. So I want to ask everyone here this morning, has Christ's resurrection brought you out of your sin? Everyone here has known what it's meant to be in our sin. We're born that way. The question is, have you come out of it by the grace of God? Have you cried out to God and said, God, would you save me? I believe in Christ's work to save me from my sins. And I'm trusting in Christ alone. And if you haven't done that, it's very simple. God God wants you to cry out, God, would you save me from my sins? I do believe. What Christ did, I see it and I believe. And I'm trusting in what he did to save me. That God will save you from your sins. And another question, are you running to the gospel to live the new life? Or are you trying to do it all on your own? Um, Or are you running to Christ for that help? Again, thinking about mothers, are you a mother who is still in her sins? Are you a mother who, who, or are you a mother who has received the forgiveness of God and now has new life in Christ and is no longer the woman that you once were? You're one. You're one of the two. You're either currently in your sins and slave, a slave and bound to those things, or you've been set free and now you're in a position to battle them. But have you received Christ's forgiveness? It, it, he's offered as a, as a gift, free to you, at great cost to Him through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But have you said, God, I will you grant that to me? Will you forgive me? I'm a sinner. And I deserve your punishment. I deserve your judgment. God, will you forgive me and cleanse me of my sin? You will never be the mother that Christ wants you to be if you're still in your sins. And the great hope, the good news is you don't have to be in those sins because Christ died to bring you out of them. I think as well, to be a parent is to be exposed to sides of your depravity and sin that frankly you probably didn't even know were there. I mean, you thought you never struggled with this sin or that sin until maybe you got married or had children and then you realized, I guess I do have a problem with that one, that sin, that struggle. And you may be a mother sitting here this morning or, or, or a Christian, regardless of whether or not you're a mother, and you may be sitting here with an immense amount of guilt hanging over your head. And some of that guilt may be very genuine uh, because of your sin and your fallenness and other aspects of that guilt may be false. And uh, some of your feelings of guilt may be huge and just massive weights coming down on your shoulder. And there may be other guilts. It's just literally like a million pinpricks constantly. And 
probably different things for different people. Some of you perhaps feel guilty over an abortion and you look back and you, you, you go, wow, like that happened and I can't undo it. Others of you, maybe it's over a failed marriage or infidelity and, and you even look at how that would impact your children today. Others of you, you consider your impatience or your anger or your frustration and your reactions with your children and you realize, I am not the person that God wants me to be in my home. Or maybe it's guilt over your selfishness in the home or uh, perhaps your parents or your children, they are grown and you're an empty nester and now you just kind of look back and there's a lot of guilt there. Maybe you think about how you parented or if I go back, I'd change this, I'd change that Or maybe it's over how you provoked or pushed your kids away or maybe you feel like you did that. You're not sure, but things just aren't quite right. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing as a Christian to take all of those guilts, the real ones and the false ones, and to take them all before the Lord, before Jesus, and to confess those that are real and to lay them at the feet of the resurrected Christ and say, God, I, I am guilty. I haven't done things I have so many imperfections and shortcomings and sins and here they are at your feet. The feet of the resurrected Christ. The resurrection really is proof that the Father accepted Christ's atoning death for your sins and that they've been paid for. And what a beautiful thing as a parent to be able to take those because any parent here has those guilts and those sins. How could you not? And to take all those and recognize they've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been paid for. And the resurrection also means that you have new life. And well, yeah, we would look at our past and go, there's sin there and there's, there's guilt and there's culpability and it's been paid for. But the resurrection means that by God's grace today, I can hopefully live as God wants me to live. And he can give me his grace and strength to live a new life and whatever sin is plaguing you, whatever you're struggling with, you're not bound to it as a slave any longer. You're now in a position to grow and change. And further, your identity is not wrapped up in your motherhood or, or lack of motherhood or whatever the case may be for the believer. Your identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And he, he forgave my sins. Because of the resurrection, those are dealt with, they're paid for, they're gone. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west and I've been brought into the family of God and I'm his child. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that for all of us who have put our trust in Christ, our identity is is not first and foremost in some role that we have or don't have. It's in Jesus Christ. The sixth implication, if the believer does not rise bodily, then death itself is the end for the believer. Look at verse 18 then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no bodily resurrection for the believer and Christ didn't rise, that would mean that death is the end. It's over. Death would be destruction without any future at all. Uh, Death, you might think of it, it would have a venomous bite. You think about a a, a snake, maybe just... And and biting and the the, the sting of that bite or even a wasp or a hornet or a bee or something like that. It stings. But Christ has been raised bodily from the dead. And the believer confidently awaits eternal life, not just in some kind of soul experience before the presence of the Lord, but bodily in God's presence. Death has lost its sting for the believer all the way to the point that in this verse, 
Paul describes it as sleep. Sleep. Not some venomous bite that, that, that stings and, and hurts. Yes, it's painful, but it's the language of sleep that's used. Uh, keep your finger here and turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4. As you're turning there, um, some of my grandparents have died and I believe are currently in the presence of the Lord because they put their trust in Christ. But in some ways I think harder than personally losing my grandparents was probably watching my parents grieve the loss of their own parents. It was very hard to watch my mom uh, grieve the loss of her own mother and watch my dad, maybe even more so, grieve the loss of his father. But the wonderful thing is what First Thessalonians 4 uh, verses 13 and following say, I just want to read this whole paragraph. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in Philipp- or 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are, and that's that word, asleep. He's talking about people who have died, believers who have died. And he doesn't want them to be informed, he says, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. If you lose a loved one who's trusted Christ as Savior, you will grieve. That's perfectly natural. That's to be expected. But you're not going to grieve as, as others who have no hope. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And he ends that chapter with these words, therefore encourage one another with these words. Take heart. Encourage one another. If the believer does not rise bodily, then death is the end. That's just it. But in fact, verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Christ has been raised from the dead. Death is not the end and death has lost its sting. For some of you, today is a very hard day. And it's hard perhaps because this is the first Mother's Day without your own mother or some other loved one. And maybe it was all you could do actually to to get yourself even here today. Or maybe your mother is currently suffering and in a lot of pain and agony, maybe coming even towards the end of her life. And I just want to challenge you, be encouraged by the resurrection of Jesus. Suffering and death are not the end for the believer. To be absent from the body we read in scriptures, to be present with the Lord. And and the scriptures that we've just looked at remind us that there is a happy face-to-face reunion for God's people. It awaits and it's void of sin and it's void of the curse because Jesus Christ is alive. And finally, one more implication. Then you are the most pitiable people of all. If Christ isn't alive, Christians are the most pitiable people of all. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no bodily resurrection for the believer, if all of our hope in Jesus just has to do with here and now, then Christ didn't rise and that would mean that you are of all people most pitiable 
of all the people on the face of the earth. Why? Well, because you've hoped the highest and your hopes are going to get dashed the lowest. And because any suffering you've experienced and any kind of sacrifices you've made for the gospel, that's all for nothing. I mean, just think about one really simple example. Some of you, since the day that Christ saved you, have given something like 10% of, of your income to the Lord. And if you just totaled all of that up, whether that's been the last three years or the last 30 years, what would that come out to be? Well, I mean, probably thousands of dollars. If you've done that for two, three, four, maybe five decades of your life, what would that come up to be? Maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what this verse is saying is... Anything like that is just a total waste. I mean, just, and anyone would look at a Christian and go, what are you doing? <laughs> You're crazy. You've lost your mind. You could be living in a nicer house right now, driving a nicer vehicle, going on more holidays. And that's just one example. We would be the most deluded people of all. If Christ is dead and buried somewhere, we would be better off living by the philosophy that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and just focus on enjoying your life, and that, that's it, right here, right now. Live entirely for the pleasure of the moment. If Christ didn't rise, we are to be pitied because we're living an extremely deluded life. But Christ has been raised bodily, and in reality, God's people are not the most to be pitied if you understand that reality, you recognize we're actually, of all people, most to be envied. Is that the position that you see yourself in? Seriously. Of all the people on the face of the earth, that we would be those most to be envied? If Christ is alive, that means your position is enviable and you can have joy in it regardless of your earthly circumstances. And just as we wrap up here, I want to ask you this, do you? Do you have joy? Does your bright future give you joy in the present? And does your enviable situation in Christ give you joy? Perhaps when you consider your circumstances and uh, your life, or maybe as you think about being a mother, or um, maybe even some unfulfilled desires in in that realm, in, in many different ways. Perhaps you feel frustrated, sad, disgruntled, or discouraged. And it may have to do... Uh, with what you would be doing if, if you didn't have children. Maybe you think about uh, the career that you have, would have. And some, there are days where that's hard. Like you just kind of wish you could go do that. Or maybe it's the endless menial task, particularly if you're a stay-at-home mom of laundry, cooking, cleaning, diapers. Or uh, maybe it's the poor state of your health or the lack of time and the struggle that it is right now in this particular phase to even have friendships and relationships and cultivate those because you're so busy as a mother. Uh, Maybe the pain of pregnancy and childbearing or of a miscarriage or the inability to conceive, the challenges of being a single mom or a disrespectful, ungrateful, rebellious child. These things are real in every day and it's where people live. And can I just encourage you to look at the gospel, particularly those aspects that are yet to come. The future impacts the present and it brings joy even in the midst of a pain and a lack of earthly happiness at times. We are, of all people, not the most to be pitied. We are, of all people, the most enviable. 
And when we don't think that way, one of the, the most significant things we can do is maybe I should look forward. There's a resurrection coming. And there's life in Christ. You must believe in the bodily resurrection of the believer. And just as the sun sets in the evening and it rises again in the morning, so the believer falls asleep in Christ and wakes bodily from among the dead. That is our hope in Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me at this time?